I want to get going tonight, not because I have a long lesson. Actually, I don't think it's that long, but I've been accused of doing that in the past and then going three times longer than I thought I would. So I realize that's a strong possibility. Um, it is a, an interesting title tonight, The Cross Teaches Us How to Die. I do this because we are on this series on the cross. I'm listening every week for where to land. Um, there's a lot to talk about. In fact, I spoke to a young minister today on the phone who asked my opinion on what Jesus was doing when he died on the cross. I thought, what a fitting question, because I've been wrestling with this. I've been wrestling with it for years, but I've really been wrestling with it lately. So we talked about some of the things that we're pretty sure Jesus was doing when he died on the cross. And one of the things I told him was, we, we, we think we know a thousand things Jesus was doing. I'm being hyperbolic, of course. But say we think we know a thousand things Jesus was doing when he died on the cross. If we're honest, we're probably wrong about 990 of them. Uh, the 10 that maybe we're right on, we don't even know which 10 it is to, <laughs> because we're really in a journey. We're just trying, to, we're trying to, to understand this most pivotal moment in Christian history. This is really what makes us who we are is the cross and the resurrection. If we didn't have that, um, we would have good principles and we would have you know, a book. But this is what we're willing to quote-unquote, lay our lives down for it. It's really what we came into the faith is about the cross. So whatever we think we know is just a step on the journey. It doesn't mean we're all wrong. doesn't mean we're all right, but we're on a journey. So as I'm praying every week and asking, where do we land this week and watching more scriptures and just sort of unpacking them and, and opening them like hopefully like a, a gift, um, we had this loss in our Chapin group of a friend uh, who, who, what I like to say is completed his baptism because I think that's what happens to us in Christ. We're gonna talk about that tonight. His death, coupled with me thinking about the death of Christ on the cross, brought this lesson to the forefront. And it's really a two-parter because I had another spot. I woke up in the middle of the night with a landing spot for this word. And as I sat down to unfold this word, to get me to my landing, because sometimes I like to know where I'm gonna end up, where I'm gonna end up and I can work backwards in a message. So I started where I wanna end up and as I worked backwards, the body of, of that got larger. And I felt rather than trying to do a big double lesson tonight where we really take a left and a right and cover a lot of material, let's just use this as the sort of setup for next week. So we're gonna do kind of a two-parter, although it won't be part one, part two. Um, our lesson tonight is the cross teaches us how to die. And really I wanna take you into the death of Christ as, as it regards our death, and then next week, uh, we want to land on what actually happened when he died. And I'm talking about what comes out of his mouth as he faces death. And so we're going to kind of leave you tonight in a, in a, a spot where we're in between. So we're going to get right to that. I say all of that for people that watch this and for that, that are looking ahead. Um, wait till the end, and we'll even give you the title so that you know what to go look for. When you're watching this a year down the road, two years down the road, you're thinking, boy, I wonder what that next message was if they're not sequentially numbered. So I'm trying to think ahead just a little bit. Um, let me start with a few thoughts. We have a natural aversion to death. Why wouldn't we? We don't know anybody that's been there. And so because we don't know anyone that's been there, we don't know what to expect. If I say to you, have you been to such and so city? And you say, yeah, I've been there. You ought to go to this restaurant. You ought to go visit this museum. When you turn down this one street, here's what you'll find. And it gives us just a little bit of familiarity. Not, we don't know anything, but at least we go, hey, so-and-so said we ought to try that restaurant. And at least you've got a place to go when you get there. 
and someone to at least come home and say, that restaurant was terrible. What was you, why were you sending me there? At least we have someone to get mad at. We don't know any, we don't know much, but we know something. We don't know anything about death. And I'm going to say this, and I don't, I, I say this to believers all the time and kind of give me a quizzical look. Um, you know less about the other side than you think you do if you're saying you know it because you've been reading your Bible. Okay? What I mean by that is a lot of Christians, we read our Bibles and we go, you know, I know over there is a place called heaven, over there is a place called hell, and here's what it looks like. And then if you have them start to list it off, it gets fantastical, the stuff that's happening in heaven and happening in hell. And then if you go down that same list and go, where's that verse, where's that verse, and where's that verse, it starts getting shabby. I mean, there's not much support. And that tells me that we don't know as much about what it looks like on the other side of death as we sometimes claim that we do. So in a way, we're averse to death because it's unknown. Um, we, we show this in that we don't die well, even as believers, sometimes we don't die well. And I mean, what I mean by that is a lot of times we, um, we're so adver- averse to death, we prefer to let the dead person tell us how to have the funeral. Funerals are for the living, by the way. They're not for the dead. The funeral is for the living so that the living know how to grieve what they've lost, so that the living work through their emotions, so that the living work through their pain. The living get to work through their memories. The songs are not for the dead. The songs are for the living. The scriptures are not for the dead. The scriptures are for the living. The prayers are not for the dead. The prayers are for the living. And yet we let the person who has died set the whole ceremony up and we say, oh, we want to honor what they wanted to do. But The reality is is that that moment is for us so that we can cope with death, so that we can cope with what we we, we don't have anymore. And, And I think because we haven't faced or refused to face death, uh, we walk into it with more fear than the Bible says we have to have. And I think some of that starts even when we're young. I know families that don't let their kids ever go to funerals. And their function for that, their reason for that is, well, I don't want them to have to deal with death. I don't want them to have to deal with the things. And we're keeping them from a stark reality that 100% of us are going to face. And that at some point you're going to be hit with. It doesn't have to be at five. It doesn't, hopefully it's not. It doesn't have to be at 15. Hopefully it's not. But it is going to happen. So you're going to face it in someone you love. Or you're going to face it in someone you know. And then ultimately, of course, you're going to face it yourself. And we don't know how we're going to die. We don't know how we're going to pass from this world to the next, uh, quickly, slowly. But I do believe that Christ has dealt with this, at least to the place that even we don't have to be a Bible scholar. We don't have to have degrees behind our name or understand Greek. If we watch and pay attention to Jesus and we watch and pay attention to the words around his arrival, his advent and his death, both in the Old Testament and the New we can start to have a comprehension of what the cross had to do with death and why it's important that we see it as sort of our teacher on how to die. The irony of all of this is we don't like to talk about death. We don't like to face death. We don't like to admit to death. We don't like to acknowledge death. And ironically, you're saved because you entered into his death. It's an amazing thing that that Christianity pushes off the conversation of the dead and yet you came into Christianity by coming in through the death of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a phenomenal irony to me that the very thing we push off that we, that we consider beneath us to talk about 
is the very thing that brought us in, God facing death on our behalf. And I think our inability to death, to deal with death, shows when we start talking about the cross. And when we start talking about the cross, um, we, we almost always interject Jesus in as something so that we didn't have to deal with it. So we say Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died so I wouldn't have to die. Jesus died as the object of God's wrath so I wouldn't. We always put him in instead of us, instead of teaching it as him as us. And then if we could start to teach his death as us, we would have a starting point for teaching death. And that would be, don't worry, don't fear. Your Savior has walked into this in front of you. And where he walked into this in front of you, he meets you. You've already introduced yourself to his death and to his resurrection. But walking into it means that death doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be something we fear and it doesn't have to be our finality, but rather it becomes the finality of something that we started in Christ. When you come to Jesus, you enter into him, not through his principles, his kindness, his healings, his miracles, you enter into him through his death. And I know we want to make salvation, and I, I'm being very careful with how I say this. I know we want to make salvation a rah-rah event, excitement, you've come to Jesus. And it should be. Of course we should be excited that people accept Jesus. Why would we not be excited? But because we've made it all about getting something great, we've made it very little about laying something down. Very little about laying the old me down to pick up the new me in Christ. And then Christianity very easily starts tilting towards the prosperity gospel. Or God helps those who help themselves. Or it, how can it not? Because it's, we're shining up salvation as this golden ticket to paradise. This ticket to not being sick. This ticket to not having stress. And then when we encounter people with stress, why are they full of stress? Because they're in sin. Why are they depressed? Because they're in sin. <laughs> I was raised in church environments where there was no such thing as depression because you had issues in your life. You were only depressed because of the devil. Straight up. There was no such thing as depression that could be dealt with, that you had to unpack some things or lay some things down. No, you probably needed an exorcism or you needed to get saved or you needed to repent. And a lot of that, I know I'm, being, I'm, I'm lumping a lot of things in one basket. I'm doing it for convenience sake. I realize we're not unpacking all of this. But a lot of that is because we've created a salvation that revolves around the favor and the shininess of what we've received in Christ that has very little to do with what we're laying down. It has very little to do with the self that dies with Him so that we're raised up with Him. So let's take a look at salvation as the cross teaches us how to die. Romans chapter 6. Verse number three, and then Romans chapter six, verses eight and nine. And I know we're skipping four to seven, and it's not because it's not good, but for purposes of trying to land on this thought, I wanna, I wanna be right here, and I encourage you, please read Romans six if you haven't, if it's been a while. Do you not know? This is a good question. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? I wanna go ahead and read eight and nine. I'm gonna work them together. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Let's start with three. 
with a simple question. Don't you know that if you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into His death? Your very entrance into the faith of Christianity is not the Sermon on the Mount. Go, do, go treat people this way. Your very entrance into Christianity is not the miracles of Jesus. Go copy Jesus and how He did miracles. Go copy His prayer life. It's not even the church and its principles. Our entrance to Christianity is baptized into the death of Christ. By default, by default and demand, you cannot come into Christ without at least the very first conversation being your own death. And I think some of the reason why we are struggling with realizing what we laid down and what we picked up is because we didn't have that honest conversation at our conversion about our own death. When you come to Jesus, what is happening is the old you has met its demise in Christ. You are not who you used to be. You look like who you used to be. You sound like who you used to be. You dress like you used to dress. You, you, you probably even act like you used to act. But you're not who you used to be. If you came into Christ, you are believing. This is the simple question. Don't you know this? Don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into His death? This makes the cross an ongoing event, not a 2,000-year-old event. We said this, I think, a week ago. The cross is a gateway into a whole new world. It's pulling the old through the cross, the eye of the needle, the resurrection, and into the new. And what it really is doing is it's introducing us to God's life by getting rid of what we were. All of what we were meeting the cross. So the cross isn't a past event. The cross is a present event and a future event and an ongoing event. That I, am, that I am laying down who I was to pick up who he is. If that happened, that leads me to verse 8. If that happened, and you only know if that happened by faith. If you've determined I've met, I'm meeting Christ in his death. And I used to would have said I met Christ in his death. I got saved back there. In my case, I got saved back there in September 1983. On a Sunday night, I got saved. I accepted Jesus. That's the moment that I came into an awareness of what I now consider my faith. I knew Jesus before I started praying that prayer. I'd always known of Jesus. That was the first moment that I came into an awareness that I make him my Lord. I couldn't have understood. I didn't understand the theology of any of it. And yes, I came in and largely out of fear. <laughs> if you don't, then this might happen to you or that will happen to you. But having come into that, I no longer now look back on that as that was the moment that I got saved. I look back on that as, like the old song says, the hour I first believed. Good old lyric to an old hymn. The hour I first believed. Not when I, just that was the first hour that I believed. And the second hour I believed was later. And the tenth hour I believed was later. And the thousandth hour I believed. And my next hour is still ahead of me. But in every one of those hours that I believed... I've really entered into the realization of my death in Christ so that I'm not what I was. If that's the case, then I have a secondary belief. And I don't mean secondary chronological. It's not as important as my first, but a belief that follows naturally out of my first belief. That if I died with Christ, then subsequently I believe that I'm also going to live with him. And I know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, and this is key to tonight, dies no more. So in going into death, Christ doesn't remain dead. He is alive. And the most important part about that is he doesn't die again. So he doesn't go back into death. If I have met him in his death and believe that I live in him, then how many times should I fear death from now on? This should be the message of our hope. 
in Christianity. We've made heaven the message of our hope. And we don't know much about heaven. Why are we making the object of our hope something we don't know much about? What we do know is that the early church believed they had a resurrected Jesus and they wrote about him and they invited you to meet him. And that's what you did. You came to Christ and laid down who you were so you could receive who he is. And he is not going to die anymore. Death no longer dominates Jesus. And I have entered into Christ, therefore death no longer dominates me. I cannot die again. Now, I'm going to physically die. Well, absolutely. Absolutely, I'm going to physically die. But I don't have to make that an object of fear. And I don't have to even make that finality. That leads me to this thought. Jesus died to sin so that I am no longer alive to sin. That does not mean I don't sin. It means that sin cannot have anything on me. I'm in Christ. Now, it doesn't mean also that I don't confess what I do wrong because confession is not so that God forgives me of my sins. Confession is so that I lay down what I have done so that I can pick up who he is. I confess quite honestly for me. I don't confess for God. And let me give you a freebie here, an aside. I think one of the mistakes we've made in the message of grace is discouraging people from confessing their sins because we came out of environments in which confessing your sins got you forgiven. You know the reason you people, you're going to have to confess your sins if you want the Lord to forgive you. And we push back against that. You know what? We should push back against that because forgiveness happens at Calvary and you entered into his forgiveness. And how many times can he die on the cross? He's only died once. So your forgiveness is in Christ and underneath his blood. You don't confess so that God will forgive you. But in doing that, what we did was we caused an entire generation of grace believers to stop confessing their sins. You go, well, who cares if they don't confess their sins? Because what we don't drag out into the light of his truth, we often keep into the basement of our own hearts. And then many times, even while we're claiming that we have no condemnation, we carry it anyway. We're going, oh, no condemnation in Christ. And yet we carry all of this baggage that we won't say out loud because if we say it out loud, we're still afraid people will judge us and we call ourselves free. And that is just as legalistic as it was before we came into grace, except now we're still holding on to the things we used to let go of, at least to receive his forgiveness. Can't we just accept that his forgiveness is absolute, but my confession is so that I can be released of the garbage that I carry and say, I'm, I'm laying this in front of you. I'm not going to carry this with me any longer. I know what I've done and I know I shouldn't have done it. And I know I am forgiven, but it is not who I am because I am dead to sin. And I lay that down. And I don't think that's too much to ask of a people who are that forgiven to act that forgiven. And, and that is a laying down of what I am. So I'm not alive to sin. He didn't die to death, but death still happens to us all. I didn't, I didn't mean the word but there. That was a rebuttal. Let me say that again. He did not die to death. Death still happens to us all. Probably should have put a semicolon. That would have helped me read that better. He died to sin. Didn't die to death. He died into death. By entering into that death, he showed me both how to face death and he showed me that I do not need to fear death as a finality because by walking into death, he then walks into resurrection. He teaches all of us who follow him. You don't have to fear you walk into this, this isn't the final straw. Let's go Old Testament, New Testament, shall we? One of the Old Testament passages, well, there's a lot that deal with death. There's not a lot that deal with the other side. 
of death. Um, you, you, you struggle if you try to establish a real, um, well-rounded idea of quote-unquote heaven or hell by using simply what we call the Old Testament. You'll struggle. You won't have much. Because they had death, of course, but they didn't have a well-rounded theology of what happens afterwards. To give you a little bit of proof that you may have never thought about, when Jesus is on the earth, the two major schools of thinking are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Remember those guys? They appear in every gospel except John. John has no Sadducees. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are the major schools of theological thought in Hebrew, and they're doing this all the time. And they're doing it over a number of reasons, but one huge reason is because the Sadducees do not believe in a resurrection of the, of the body, and the Pharisees do believe in a resurrection of the body. And you would think, if it was that absolutely clear in the Old Testament, we wouldn't have that kind of division over that subject. Jesus, by the way, this always shocks people, Jesus' theology was pharisaical in that respect because Jesus believed in the resurrection. So Jesus sided, and by the way, Jesus sided with the Pharisees on almost all points of interpreting the law, except he loved people. <laughs> they allowed the law to keep them from loving people. So that, that becomes the major dividing line, and that should be the major dividing line of any of us in all of our di differences. Whatever theological differences we might have, the dividing line should be, well, you don't love people. Love people or don't love people. That should be the real thing that pushes us away from, a, from a, a group. So let's take one of those Old Testament passages, and it's not a, a real heaven or hell passage, but it is one that gives us hope past a finality. I've read this to you before, but I, I think this is such... I, this is one you ought to mark in your Bible, by the way, because this is one of those texts from the Old Testament that really gives you some sort of New Testament ideas about post-death. In this mountain, Isaiah 25, 6... In this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, a fat things full of marrow, well-refined wines on the lees. This is a feast. This is just a banquet in the old world. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. Just as a point of reference, when Paul writes the second letter to the Corinthians, he writes in the third chapter that the veil that had been over the hearts of God's people, the Hebrews, was torn in half in Christ. And his obvious reference is Moses and the veil Moses wears when he comes down the mountain. But his secondary reference is something like this. The veil that's been spread is going to be destroyed in verse 7. That God is going to take off whatever it is that are keeping people from seeing the purity of who he is. Next screen. Verse 8. He will swallow up. Watch this. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he would take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Now you might recognize some of verse 8 because some of it resurfaces in the book of Revelation when at the new Jerusalem he wipes all tears from our eyes. That was not a new statement in Revelation. It was a repeated statement. From Isaiah 25, it was a prophetic statement that the Jews had, but that swallow up death forever is one that the Apostle Paul's going to borrow, and we're going to get to his text in a moment. I'm putting these out there to show you that a lot of what we've had about New Testament concepts of what God is going to do at quote-unquote the end of the world were the prophecies that Israel had about the mountain of God that they believed was coming. 
The same mountain, by the way, that Hebrews chapter 12 said you're already on. You're not at Sinai with its laws and its darkness. You're at Zion with the church of the firstborn, God the judge, and the spirits of just men made perfect, and the blood of, that speaks better things of Abel. You're at that mountain. What mountain is that? The mountain in which death is swallowed up, and God wipes away tears from his eyes, and the rebuke of his people he takes away from all the earth. Verse 9. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In reality, when we say things like, uh, and I know this is a famous song, country song that we sing at funerals, but there's theology in this. Go rest high on that mountain. And we use that as sort of a funeral dirge of go to a place where you can rest. We have theology there that stretches all the way back into the Hebrew mentality that we go rest at the high place and the New Testament uses that image and says, you're there now. You're on the high place now. And I'll add this, you're on the high place now in the same way that you're dead in Christ. You're still standing here. You're breathing. Your heart's beating. You're alive. You're going to die in this body and go wherever your spirit goes. But your spirit man has already entered into that kingdom, entered into that phase, that mountain in which death no longer dominates you. Death no longer has its influence over you. It's just you'll, you'll, you will lay this down and enter into the fullness. And so in a way, when we say of the dead, they've went up that mountain, they're resting high on that mountain, we're not wrong. It's the finality of their journey that they begun in Christ it's not a brand new thing that happens that simply happens the moment they die. It's the fullness of the thing that started the moment that they died in Christ by accepting him and by stepping into his baptism. Here's how Paul would say it in 1 Corinthians 15. You and I have done some work on this in the past in our resurrection series. 54 to 56. When this corruptible, think natural body, has put on incorruption, think supernatural body. This mortal, that which dies, has put on immortality, that which does not die. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Brian, can you go back to that Isaiah passage? And one more, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. Isaiah 25, 8. Now I'll go forward two screens back to Corinthians. The saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Worded a little different, but there's Paul's reference. So in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul isn't making it up. Prophetically, someday death is going to be swallowed up in victory. No, Paul's reaching back. He's not reaching forward. He's reaching back into the Isaiah letter to go, someday death is going to be swallowed up in victory. And Paul goes, let me show you where it's finally going to be completed in you. Now, this is the same Paul that told you you died in Romans 6. As many of you as were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death. We read that together. St. Paul. You're baptized into Christ, you're baptized into his death. In that he died once to sin, you die and believe that you shall live again. Right? Done deal. And yet, he goes, when your fleshly man dies, when your mortal puts on the immortal, then the full prophecy comes to pass. Death gets swallowed up in your victory. How in the world is death a victory? If not for death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. If not for the fact that Christ goes into death and then comes out in resurrection, 
death would be considered a victory. But because Jesus took the sting of death, Jesus entered into death, we get to face it. And that makes the cross then the centerpiece, not just for how we come into Christ, but it makes the cross the centerpiece for every day we stay in Christ. Every day we're in Christ, we realize that we're in because of his death and alive because of his resurrection. And then the author of Hebrews would tip his cap to both and say this in Hebrews 2.9. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And so here comes Jesus, made a little lower than the angels, had to be made a little lower than the angels, so that he could suffer as if he were man, because he was man. And in the great paradox of the faith, he was God, and he was man. And as man and God, he dies at Calvary, suffering to taste death for us. It's interesting that Paul said death will be swallowed up in victory. And the author of Hebrews says Jesus tasted death for us. Swallow, taste, same genre. Jesus tastes death. Imagine that he puts death. I know this is, a, I'm just going to use this physical illustration. Right? I know this didn't really happen this way. But think along the lines of this narrative. Jesus takes death and he takes a bite. And at his resurrection, he swallows that bite. He tastes death at Calvary. At his resurrection, he swallows it and stands up. And having defeated death, takes the fear from you and me. Why? Because you're going to taste death too. But your Savior has stepped out in front of you and tasted it before you and is turning around to you and saying, come on in. The water's cold, but I got you. you know, I, I'll hold your hand. I went out in front of you to test the waters. It's going to be okay. I tasted it so I could tell you what it tastes like. When you came into Christ, you began that experience of tasting death. Here's another reason why this message is foreign to us. I said us. I didn't say you. Okay? I didn't say you. I said us. It's foreign to us because we are massively successful massively successful. Almost no one watching or listening to me is under the threat of death at every second of every day. You live a pretty top shelf life. Things are fairly simple for us. I mean, even when they're rough, we're pretty sure we're not going to die. We're also pretty sure we're going to make it. Like, not just make it, but thrive. In fact, we've even got a church culture that says it's our destiny to thrive, to, to completely. And, and, I, and I'm not against the idea of you doing well <laughs> or of me doing well. But my point is that the early church writes these things in an environment where Paul said to the Corinthians, I die every day. And he didn't mean I literally die every day. He said the beasts at Ephesus are trying to kill me every day. He goes, every day I wake up could be the last day I'm on this earth. He goes, I'm facing this every second of my life. He's writing almost screaming into the void to a church that can't possibly understand what he's talking about because none of us have our lives on the line for Christ. And I'm not trying to make us feel bad. It's where we are. But if we're going to understand where they were, we're going to have to kind of lift ourselves out of this success, this wealth, this ease that all of us have, and drop ourselves back into a world where we are the outsider, we are the stranger, we are the vagabond, we are the underground. 
and go, why are you following him when it would be so much easier to just go out here and deny him or have a private faith where you really serve Jesus, but you were covert about it. You just put on like you were still Roman or you were still in the empire or Caesar is God, but you followed Jesus on the side. And I really do think that if some of us got in a time machine and went back to the early church, that's actually how we would advise them. You know, you're so radically saved. You ought to just go out here and live the way Romans live. You're still saved on the inside. God wouldn't want you to go out here and suffer like this. And I think the early church would have turned us out as heretics. And went, how dare you come in here and say, we're okay to just go sidle up next to the beast and then be privately saved on the inside. With that in mind, their entire thought process is, I could swallow death at any time. I'm facing this thing. There may be truly no tomorrow. So the writer of something like Hebrews is saying, hey, don't go back. Don't go back to the old systems. Don't go back to the old ways. Jesus has come and tasted death on your behalf so that you can know that if you die tomorrow, he swallowed your death up in his victory. You get the victory that he had. And they would not have said, what victory is that? Because they were so well-versed in the cross the burial and the resurrection of Jesus as the entire foundation of their faith. Their victory was not heaven, my home. Their victory was not overcoming sicknesses. Their, their victory was, was not a raise at work. Their victory was death doesn't end me. The worst thing Rome can do is kill me. That's all they got. And when power loses its ability to intimidate you in your life, They've lost their entire ability. They've lost all their power over you. And in less than a generation, the church started to realize Jesus really did win because he left us with a fearlessness in the face of Caesar. And it was havoc for the Caesars that followed. And it would be hundreds of years of that before the powers that be in the earth realize maybe the only way to calm the power of this church is to hold hands with it. <laughs> and then we got ourselves a whole new problem when Christianity becomes the state religion. But in this hour, I think there had to be this amazing revelation that starts to happen in that early church going, Jesus was right. This is the way you beat them. They come against you with a sword. You don't pull your sword. You open your neck. Because if you open your neck and you lay it out there in front of the sword, what's he got? You go, well, he'll just cut your head off. There's a problem. There's a problem in the soul of man. When he does that to people, he dies inside. When he cuts enough throats, he starts to cut his own. Jesus said, you live by it, you die by it. That's not just, hey, guys, don't shoot back. That's the guy is shooting you is killing himself. Because every time you bare your neck and he slits another throat and they bare their neck and he slits another throat and you might think, oh, well, he'll just slit throats into eternity because that's how the system works. Jesus goes, no, you don't get to live that way because every time you do it, a piece of you dies and the sword gets heavier and the guilt keeps you awake at night and the cries haunt you and the pain hits you and empire comes to its knees in the face of that which isn't afraid to die. I, this excites me talking about it because it... it, it, it it's like it pulls you back into what the mentality had to be for those who watched Jesus, who followed him, because the example that they get is how to taste death and swallow it up. Christ tasted death, swallowed its power, 
by raising up from the dead. We get to taste and see that the Lord is good when we enter into baptism. Because the Bible tells you to taste and see the Lord is good. How are you going to do that? Enter into what he tasted. Taste what he tasted. Baptism's a taste. It's not a swallow. It's a taste. It's, mm, I get to taste his death. When do I swallow? Someday this, this body's going back into the ground. I go do a funeral this week for a man who tasted and saw that the Lord is good when he entered into his faith. But this week he swallowed everything about Jesus. And what comes out on the other side? He walks into the fullness of his resurrection. That's, he has what I don't have now. He has what you don't have now. It's, it is worth being a little jealous over. That's okay. Paul said, for me to live as Christ, for me to die would be gain. If I live, it's Christ. If I died, he goes, bonus. He said, it's why I, he said, it's why I have finished my course and kept the faith and henceforth has laid it for me a crown of righteousness. He bears his neck in 2 Timothy and he goes, I've done everything I need to do. There's nothing. What can they do now? Just take my life? He said, that's all they've got is can take my life? And then that voice keeps speaking from beyond the grave over and over because death's been swallowed up. We get to participate in the victory over death in the assurance that we live on and we live on with him. Let me show you this in Jesus. Here's where we kind of land this plane, but we're really only going to take it down and, and fly by the tower. All right, then we're going to bank and take it back up next week. So it's going to look like we're landing, but I really just want to take you to a spot where Jesus faces the cross figuratively and almost literally faces the cross, has his posse, has his boys nearby, and they're questioning what he's doing because he lost his mind. We don't need to, he doesn't need to die. Don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. And Jesus gives them an opportunity to participate in a way because that's what Gethsemane is. He's the only one going to die on the cross, but Gethsemane is a way to participate in the crushing before the crushing. And so let me read to you a few verses from Luke 22. This is our landing, and this is where we'll take off next week. Coming out, he's coming out of Gethsemane, by the way, for context. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives. And as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him, when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Have you ever thought about why Jesus says this? I've, I'm going to be honest with you. I've never given this three seconds of my life until this message. And that's, I'm not, a, I'm not proud of that. Enter not into temptation. What, what are they going to be tempted to do? I mean, they're hanging out with Jesus. <laughs> like, what's going to happen? Am I going to, you know, am I, am I going to, what am I about to do? What is so tempting that I'm about to do? That's a great place to start. So start there. What is the temptation? He said, pray so that you don't enter into it. All right, so here we go, 41. He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthening him. What's the prayer of Jesus in 42? Dad, if there's another way, I choose another way. But if the cup you've given me, this is the cup that I am to drink. This is what's been apportioned to me. If this is your will, I'll drink this cup. Whatever's about to happen to me tonight, tomorrow, I'll do it. If that's your will. If not, show me now. And the angels show up and give him strength. And he knows immediately, okay, this is God because I'm getting this reserve. There's a strength happening on the inside to overcome the temptation to push the cup aside. I just gave you a hint. Okay. So, Whatever lies in front of me, I'll drink it. I'll take it. And here comes the strength to take it. 44. Being in agony, he then prayed more earnestly. Same prayer. 
His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The death process already begins. Jesus begins to bleed in the garden. He's already embraced the cross as the cup he's supposed to drink. He's being strengthened in his spirit, man. And he rises up from prayer because he loves his own. I know I put that in there on my own, but that's exactly what Jesus does. In the midst of sweating great drops of blood, he gets up off of his knees and goes to find his disciples. And he found them sleeping from sorrow. So they're not praying and being strengthened as he was. They've just been overwhelmed by the world around them. What's Jesus' response to this in 46? He said to them, why are you asleep? Get up, pray. Here it is again. Lest you enter into temptation. What temptation? What are you talking about? Temptation. I'm not being tempted to do anything. And yet Jesus has been tempted to not drink the cup put in front of him. And he's warned the disciples, there's an opportunity coming up in front of you. Be careful. There's going to be a temptation. And while he was still speaking, here comes a multitude. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them, drew near to Jesus to kiss him. 48. Jesus said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And there it is. Here comes the cup. The great temptation is to meet fire with fire. The great temptation is to save your own life. The great temptation is to push the cup of death aside because winners live to see another day. And Jesus warned them twice it's coming. You're going to be tempted to lean in to the system of this world. And the first words out of their mouth, Lord, do we strike with the sword? 50. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And in our Savior's fashion, touched the ear and healed him. This is the only gospel, by the way, that tells us Jesus does this. He picks the ear up, or maybe it's still hanging off the side of the man's head. But he touches the, head, the hand, his hand to his head, making himself, by the way, sacrificially unclean by touching blood. Jesus has already drank the cup. He's done, with, he's done with the rules and the regulations. He stepped into it with his father. He said, nothing else matters. I step into death. He bares his neck in front of the sword. His disciples are pulling swords right and left, start chopping ears off. The temptation he warned them for, they missed. So I don't know what you'll do with this, but I think what we ought to do with this is realize that I think Jesus is warning all of us to flee the hour of temptation by facing the cup that's been put in front of us because there's going to be the temptation to create a salvation that's built around something other than stepping into the death of Christ. And it's a multi-billion dollar business. <laughs> stepping into the death bears your neck and says, the worst thing to do to me is kill me. Maybe next week, die like a man. <laughs> I don't mean die like a man, not a woman. I mean Jesus as God died like a man. Died like mankind. And this is where the Spirit showed me yesterday afternoon in prayer, and this is where I started today and worked my way backwards, is the things Jesus does at the cross is heaven trying to show humanity how to die right. Everything he says and does at Calvary is what we ought to be doing so that we learn how to die correctly. 
and we're going to get there next week. So we go to the cross and watch Jesus do what he does in his death because there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Father, I thank you tonight for this word that I have been so impacted by. I think it's come out in my teaching tonight. I think that you are doing a work in me that revolves so much around losing someone we love this week and knowing that we have to say words over them, but having this odd sensation inside that's a little bit excited for him. It's just knows his pain is over and the worst that could happen was that he entered into the physical death so he could enter into the joys of the Lord. That is, that is an excitement. And Father, when you marry that with where we are in this study at the cross, I think something beautiful has come out of it. I hope it does what it's done in me for so many who hear it and heed it. In Jesus' name, amen.